Well, Lord willing, we'll get back to 2 Kings next week, but this morning we are going to be in John chapter 4. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well with Jesus, John 4, verses 7 through 26, at salvation and worship. And we'll see through Jesus' remarkable encounter with this notorious woman that the gospel converts notorious sinners into redeemed worshipers. The gospel converts notorious sinners into redeemed worshipers. So if you have a copy of God's word, we'll read uh, through the first part of this text now. I invite you to do that with me. Page 835 in the Pew Bible, if you're using one of those, they're right there in the rack in front of you. And if you don't have your own copy of God's word, we'd love for you to grab that, keep that, and take it with you and read it. John 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Well, there is an unbreakable connection in God's word between the power of the gospel and worship. And John chapter 4 illustrates this perhaps more vividly than anywhere else in scripture. The gospel not only rescues sinners from sin, death, and hell, it also calls people to the true worship of the true God. Jesus is traveling throughout Israel. He's been in the uh, southern region of Israel, Jerusalem, Judea. Uh, where the Jews would travel for worship at the temple. He's traveling back north now to his home region of Galilee. And on the way to Galilee, he passes through right in the middle, an area we kind of blitz through a lot because not a lot happens there. Most of it happens in Jerusalem and Galilee. But here in this story, this central region, Samaria, is vitally important. Jews don't like Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans are not only sort of imposters in the land of Israel, they were forcibly impressed upon Israel. 722 BC, when Israel fell, the Assyrian king began this program of putting down the Israelite rebellion. Well, 50 years later, another Assyrian king, his plan for this was to kind of separate all of the rebellious people. So they would transport out the native people and bring in outsiders. And the outsiders were kind of the dregs, the lowest of the low, mixed breeds, if you will. And so over time, the Jews and Samaritans began to intermarry, but they never lost their hatred for one another. It's midday now, and Jesus is in this region of Samaria, a town called Sychar. 
And as he sits there, a woman approaches him, a notorious sinner. And we see through Jesus' interaction with her is that God is a sa- God rescues sinners through a Savior who seeks sinners impartially. God rescues sinners by seeking sinners impartially. Verse 7 is, is a word that can sort of, or is, is a phrase that kind of blow by us. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now this is unusual because a woman hardly ever did this. Normally if women went to draw water, they went in groups. Early in the morning or late in the day because it was hot. Yet here it is in the middle of the day. By, this woman is by herself. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us this woman is an outcast. Even among her own people. So not only do the Jews not like her, her own Samaritans don't like her either. And then Jesus breaks every rule of society by what he does next. He speaks to her. Verse 7, give me a drink. Now, there are layers of problems here. First, the Jews consider the fact that she is a Samaritan a problem. She's unclean like a Gentile. Whatever they touch becomes unclean. So if a Samaritan were to sit here on the front pew, you, a Jew, couldn't go sit in that spot without ensuring it was wiped clean because you couldn't allow the contamination of that person to be transferred to you and thus make you unclean. But next, and making this so much worse, this is a woman. Respectable first century men don't associate with women in public because women are seen as dogs. And thirdly, this is... No ordinary woman, this is a notoriously immoral woman. The fact that Jesus even dares to speak to her opens him up to accusations of being flirtatious or being promiscuous. You remember some of the accusations the the Jewish leaders would make of Jesus, that he eats with sinners, with drunkards and gluttons. It's through interactions like this, Jesus exposes himself to this notorious woman. And verse 9 tells us that not only do we know this shouldn't be happening, she knows it shouldn't be happening. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then, in case it wasn't quite clear, John adds a note of explanation. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus has all kinds of reasons not to reach out to this particular woman. Yet he reaches out to her in love without prejudice without regard for what people will no doubt be saying about him. In chapter 8, the Jews will actually accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. Guilt by association. Jesus seeks the sinner without prejudice. And he satisfies her need without limit. Jesus satisfies sinners eternally. Jews think whatever this woman touches becomes unclean. And yet, whatever Jesus, the Son of God, touches becomes clean. It's sort of like this powerful curse reversal, where the infinitely powerful Son of God makes this woman clean. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Leviticus chapter 23 tells the Jews to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a week-long commemoration of what God did in providing shelter for the people in the wilderness. Tabernacle is an attempt to translate a Hebrew word that basically means temporary shelter. 
As the Jews, the Israelites, fled Egypt, they lived in temporary shelters or tents. And yet it's not these shelters that ultimately protected them. The Lord protected them on their journey. And centuries later, in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up on the last day of this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. In Exodus 17, again in Numbers 20, the Lord miraculously provided water for his people from a rock. And since that day, God's people had looked forward to the day when living water would once again flow out to God's people. Zechariah 13.1 predicts this day. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But this water doesn't just satisfy our thirst. It does this. It cleanses them from sin and uncleanness. Jesus comes to satisfy and refresh God's people. But hearing all this is rather strange. The Samaritan woman does not track with Jesus. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus is meeting at night with a well-known Jewish leader named Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus, you have to be born a second time. Nicodemus didn't get that either. So the woman responds, verse 11, with a question, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. This well is deep. So where do you get that living water? And then Jesus makes a remarkable statement in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a well, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, one of the frustrating things about being good today is it doesn't make you good tomorrow. You know, like, life is just like this series of small decisions. Like, working out one day does not Arnold Schwarzenegger make. It just doesn't work that way. Eating well one day may make you feel happy, but it doesn't make you lose weight. Eating a meal, sleeping well... They're things you have to do over and over and over again. Imagine you could sleep one night and work for a month, how much you could get done. But that's not how life works. And that's the picture that Jesus gives here. In contrast to a world where drinking water today doesn't satisfy you tomorrow, Jesus offers you a drink of something that can satisfy you eternally. I mean, this is mind-blowing and paradigm-shattering. Finding something that could take every inner desire, your deepest thirst, your innermost longing, and one drink from this well would satisfy it. I mean, this woman has been searching everywhere. Through every man, every possible means of finding security, of finding satisfaction, of finding safety in a world where she's an outcast. And every choice she makes takes her further and further down this road. And Jesus says, one drink of this and all your problems go away. It is too good to be true. To drink the living water of the gospel is to never thirst again. It's what Isaiah 55 says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come and drink and be satisfied. And the invitation is the same today. Come to the waters. Come receive Christ by faith.
the hottest part of the day, this woman is carrying a heavy jug through town. A world where I never have to carry that jug again sounds amazing. So she responds. And she responds affirmatively, but she doesn't yet understand. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What does she want? She wants her problems to go away, but she doesn't yet want Christ. She hears his words, but she doesn't understand his message. And so how does Jesus respond? He loves sinners compassionately. Jesus now suggests something that will reveal not only does she not understand Jesus' words, she doesn't understand her own heart. I mean, we're talking about water. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, go get your husband. Ooh. So the woman kind of dodges and says, I have no husband. But Jesus already knows this. Verse 17, you're right in saying, I have no husband. Because you've had five. And you're living with a sixth. You know, our hearts are so deceptive that we think, like, if we don't say it aloud, then God doesn't know it. So the woman makes a true statement, I don't have a husband. Yet Jesus knows her heart is even darker than she's willing to let on. She's a serial adulterer. I think Jesus' approach here is so helpful. We live in a world where we're told that unless we affirm sinful choices... We don't love a person. Yet it's because Jesus loves this woman that he can't affirm her in her sin. He, he can't affirm her in something that ultimately harms her. Rather, he approaches her in love and compassion to confront her sin. We tend to do this poorly in two ways. One, we take an accepting approach. We sort of hide what God's word says. Jesus loves you. It's true. You're a sinner. That's also true. And because that's a difficult message that sounds harsh to sinners like us, we want to hide it. But some Christians go the other way. They thump their Bible in ways that Jesus wouldn't. So in your face, with the way they treat other people, that looks more like the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees, and are so judgmental of other sinners that they forget about their own sin, and interact with the world in a pugnacious, fist-shaking kind of way, and we see neither of these in Christ. In Christ, he employs a method that is both clear about the truth and kind, or, or what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, truth in love, truthing in love. It's the truth in a context of a loving relationship. He understands who the woman is. 
He interacts with her in love by speaking to affirming her dignity as a human being made in the image of God. But he also understands that apart from being delivered from her sin, she will die and go to hell. You have had five husbands and now the one you have isn't your husband. Some of us need to allow our thinking to be shaped by the word of God in lovingly confronting sin. Others of us need to allow the word to shape our witness by applying the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, patience, self-control, in the way we share the love of God. She's a sinner who hadn't yet realized her desperate need for Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning like this woman. I mean, not just like this woman. Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. But perhaps the Spirit of God is revealing to you today how much you need Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is a message of love for sinners, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel calls worshipers. Let's pick up now reading in verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In verse 19, the woman sees just a little piece. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Well, she sees that Jesus can see things that normal people can't. But she doesn't yet truly see. So she responds with some ethnic differences between Jews and Samaritans. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say down in Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. Jews and Samaritans have this in common. They accept the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. After that, though, it's off for the Samaritans. So they accept the first five books, but not the rest of the Old Testament. Jews, of course, accept everything. Genesis through Malachi. So the big difference here is... That this woman knows, Deuteronomy 12.5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name and make his habitation there. And yet, the Jews know that the Lord used David and then his son Solomon to establish what as the center place of worship? Jerusalem, where the temple is. All of that, though, happens after the Pentateuch, so the Samaritans accept none of this. They accept only the Pentateuch. In Genesis chapter 12, after Entering the promised land, Abraham built an altar at Shechem near Mount Gerizim. And in the Samaritan Bible, both times the Ten Commandments are given, they're followed by words that make it sound like the people are to worship here at this mountain. So they built their temple here and insist that other people worship there, not in Jerusalem. Yet this woman, like the Jews, the well-intentioned is mistaken. She misunderstands the nature of true worship. Because worship is ultimately about a person, not a place. 
Jesus begins to deconstruct the idea of location-centered worship. Verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he says, all right, Jews, Samaritans, who's right? Nobody did. They all miss it. So if worship isn't about a place, what's it about? Jesus begins to answer this question in verse 22. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Worship, Jesus says, and salvation, Jesus says, are linked. You cannot separate the two. We worship the God who saves. To the Samaritans, Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. Well, what's he getting at here? The Samaritans can know God, but they've rejected much of God's revelation. So, yes, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Yes, you accept this, but you can't accept part of God and then reject the rest of God. You, you, you can't accept God's grace and throw out his justice. You can't accept God's love and throw out his righteousness. You can't accept God's mercy and throw out his holiness. Jesus says, no, you accept God. Because worship isn't about what you want, it's about who God is. The Jews, on the other hand, worship, they say, what we know. It doesn't mean that all the Jews are going to be saved. Jesus makes this clear because throughout the Gospels, he's condemning Jews, Jewish leaders. But this means that the Jews seek the true God in the Scriptures as he reveals himself. True worship is driven by the Word of God. In other words, Jesus is saying the way to find God is in God's revelation. You can't say, God, show me yourself, and then set aside God's revelation of himself as if what God says about himself doesn't matter. And our experience of what we imagine God should be like becomes sort of the ruling idea of who God is. No, God, as the creator of all things, has the right to reveal himself. And Jesus says, he has. God has revealed himself to you through his word. Salvation is from the Jews. The Jews received God's saving revelation, and they are, through Christ, the vehicle of God's revelation. In other words, the scriptures reveal God's saving purposes in Jesus Christ. They're not just a book of rules and regulations. They're not just inspirational nuggets to help you have a better week. They exist to reveal Christ. The glory and grace of God are revealed through God's creative, revealing and redeeming work. We don't worship a place, but a person. We don't worship according to dead tradition, but according to the living, breathing word of God. We don't worship to save ourselves, because we can't. We worship to declare the glory of the God who does save. Pride tells us we don't need God. God says, you can't live without me. And then Jesus lays out a beautiful word about the purpose and nature of worship in verses 23 through 26. 
Have you ever been in a relationship where <laughs> you're kind of walking along through life and you think you figure out what the person wants and you give it to them and that doesn't make them happy and so you give them something else and that doesn't make them happy and then you keep walking through and you find like, what do you want from me? You're trying to figure out expectations. So this morning, Jesus makes God's expectations for worship clear. In verse 23, what is God seeking? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I mean, we all came here this morning seeking something. Some of us just like, I need something to get me out of bed, and if I don't get there, I'm not getting out of bed. Some of us came in knowing what we were looking for. Others of us are completely unaware. This one went to the well thinking she was looking for water. You may be walking through life looking for acceptance. Or maybe you're struggling in life or marriage and looking for some level of help or some sense of rhythm in a world that doesn't feel normal. We're all seeking something, but the most, quest the most important question for us this morning is not what are you seeking, but what is God seeking? The primary audience in worship is God himself. Our questions, including my own, about worship tend to sound something like this. Did we sing songs I liked? Did we sing them in a way I liked? Did the preacher say something I liked? Did I see anyone I liked? Each of these questions is about our expectations for worship. But the question we should ask is, what is God seeking? Was God pleased with our worship? True worship asks the question like the psalm, who is the king of glory? And answers, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. If worship is boring, it's not because God is boring. It's because our hearts haven't been captivated by the beauty and grace of God. We haven't learned to pray with the psalmist. One thing, one, one thing do I seek after. That I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We haven't been captivated by the, the wonder and grace of a God who makes all things, who reigns high above in heaven, who Isaiah falls on his face and cries, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, I'm a man undone. And that that God walks up to this woman and says, Give me a drink. If that doesn't captivate you, if you don't begin to see the greatness and the glory of our God as we see it here in his word. Oh, friends, the time for worship at the temple has ended. It's time to worship a person, not a place. The hour is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
because it's rooted in the nature of God himself. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Well, (laughs) what is that? You're like talking about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And then God is spirit. If you know anything about biblical language, the word spirit can often be translated uh, breath. (laughs) What is breath? You're like, I'm glad I'm not sitting close to him. Breath is something we avoid. Something we can't see, but we can smell. Or wind. What does it mean to be spirit? I mean, we are human, corporeal, bodily. Jesus' conversation in John 3 helps us understand. John 3, verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Well, how do you know wind? See its effects, right? You can see what it does. We can't grasp the wind. We can't contain it or comprehend it, ultimately. But we can see its effects. We can hear its sound. In the same way, God as spirit gives life to his people. A couple of weeks ago, I had some folks over to the house, and our son Joseph is, he's the opposite of me. And there are many, many respects in which he's like mini-me, and this is one in which he is not, in that he is very artistically inclined. And it's a gift because if he looked like me, like when, um, uh, when I was in fourth grade, our, every, every fourth grade class did the same project. They gave you half of Abraham Lincoln's face, and you had to draw the other half. And it's like you're walking along, and you're like, oh, that dude has a tumor. That was mine. And that looked like the other half of Abraham Lincoln's face. Like, art is just not my thing. My wife, on the other hand, does art beautifully. And so Joseph has uh, picked this up from, uh, from Liz, and he's just constantly doing things. And some people were, uh, he was talking to some people, and, like, he's just the whole time he's talking and, like, working on stuff, and he's, like, taping it up um, around our house. And you've seen this before. And so, like, our, our house is filled with creations, Sometimes you know what they are, and sometimes you don't know what they are. But the truth is, he's always creating art. Well, how do I know when Joseph is creating art? Like, if I'm not there watching it happen, how do I know? I see its effects. You see a beautiful painting by a master artist. You don't question, was the artist painting? Why? Because you see the strokes of the brush. You see the effects of the artist's handiwork. You see what happens. Uh, Perhaps your children, uh, Joseph has one of these patterns too, where he blows through a room and you know he's been there because boom, tornado hit the room. You can see the effects. You don't have to know he was there. And in a similar way, the Spirit of God produces effects in our lives and in our worship. At the least... This means that some of these effects must be the fruits of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace. Those are the effects of the Spirit. 
we must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, it's impossible to worship without both spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit is to worship him in truth, and to worship him in truth is to worship him in spirit. Or we might say it this way, if our worship isn't captivated by God, his glory, his grace, it's not true worship. You you can go through an experience that feels like worship. We can come together, have a good time, leave happy and encouraged, and yet not worship. They're serious about the gospel and worship when they know God. And the close to this conversation between Jesus and this woman is remarkable. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Jesus comes to satisfy and refresh God's people. And the only way to be satisfied eternally is to come to God through faith in Christ. It may be that you are a lifelong member of Ashley River Baptist Church. It may be that you are a lifelong member of some other church. It may be that you have long considered yourself a good Christian person. You may have identified as good your entire life and yet never seen that like this woman you aren't good. That your greatest need isn't a form of morality, but a savior. One who can rescue you from your own ideas of goodness. Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Come, sinners, poor and needy. Sometimes we ask the question, is Jesus in you or is Jesus in your heart? And I think that's a fine question to ask. But scripture more often asks the question, are you in him? Are you in Christ? The saddest thing would be for someone who gathers for earthly worship to miss the great coming heavenly worship service. Because it's not about a set of rhythms or behaviors. It's about genuine repentance and faith in Christ. The day when all of God's people gather around the throne and sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You may be a lifelong attender of worship services, but God is calling you today to become a true worshiper. Would you turn? Would you turn from the sin of believing that some tradition, that some building, that some program, that some denominational name can save you? Would you turn from the sin of believing in your own goodness and trust the goodness of Christ alone? We must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then... We'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.
Father, we thank you for Christ who came, your spirit who lives in us, and that we worship a triune God who reigns over all things. But a God who not only reigns, a God who loves, demonstrates compassion toward a notorious sinner like this woman. And Lord, if we're honest before you, we're all notorious sinners. And yet this morning we worship a great Savior. So we confess that our hope is in him, his goodness alone. God, we thank you and praise you for his life, death, and resurrection. Amen.